content and trigger warning. This episode, while ultimately full of life and beauty, contains some stories of abuse, physical, sexual, and psychological. I'd even started going to see the Christian therapist that they had arranged for me to see, but you know, he his, his only real attempts to to convert me were in the beginning, you know, and, and it was high stakes, you know, he, he, he was basically, what he would basically say is, uh, you don't get to be the person who you were before if you go down this path. But, I mean, that must be the strategy, right, to, to really introduce some kind of ticking clock scenario, you know, like, you've only done this so far, but, you know, if, if this goes on any longer, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna lose who you were. This is the airing of grief. Conversations and correspondence about spiritual D and reconstruction. Season 2, Episode 12 Original Innocence. Dear Derek, here follows my story, Cliff Notes version, of God and church and pain and reckoning. I was saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit at 13, the first of my family to make the decision. Prior to that, I enjoyed an uncomplicated relationship with God, mystical, free, and totally unstructured. I just talked with God, period. But then at an FBC revival event, the music was moving and I was shaken somehow. And I heard about hell and sin nature and Jesus. I didn't know it then, of course, but from that moment forward, my relationship to God was very complicated, very fear-driven, and very fucking ego-driven. I was a young woman on fire, Bible in hand at all times, staying up all night singing and praying for my family to be saved as I was dreaming dreams of apocalyptic raptures and my parents burning in hell. This fear only fueled my impassioned monologues at the dinner table. Imagine 13 preaching to my parents and sister about this amazing love while demonstrating the most obsessive chaotic fear. It was awesome. Sarcasm. Then, age 15, one strange and totally mind-bending night, my dad asked me if I had ever masturbated and offered my mom's vibrator to me. But first of all, gross. Second of all, gross. He hugged me from behind and kissed my neck and tried to touch my still developing breasts. Somehow I managed to square up to him in a way that shut it down when he asked, are you afraid of me? No, I'm not. I spat the words with venom and crawled out from under him and smoked my first cigarette that night in the closet of our double-wide trailer house, clinging to prayers and literally choking on smoke or tears, snot, anger, shame, confusion, and self-hatred. God would forgive me, I reasoned, for smoking, for wearing my jeans too tight, for looking like my mom when she was younger, for whatever I had done to give my dad the impression that I wanted him to approach me in this way. My dad wasn't a Christian after all. He needed God. Nothing like that ever happened before or after, with my dad at least. I backslid and fell into a pattern of toxic relationships with Christian boys who wanted me for my body. They touched me and I needed their acceptance, I suppose. We fucked, 
I wept and prayed, and so the cycle went on. I married husband number one at 19. He'd been my first, and a youth pastor told me marrying him might restore a sense of purity to my soul. I'm just going to leave that one alone and move on because none of that is the worst of my story. Husband one moved on after six short months of marriage. I was divorced at 20 and remarried at 20. Out of the frying pan and into the fire, as they say. Husband number two was a charismatic youth pastor, hardly enthusiast and hot as hell. My sense of self was so bafflingly broken that I married him within weeks of my first divorce. I told myself God was loving and forgiving of the mockery I had made of marriage and failing to preserve my virginity. It was two short weeks into our marriage before the abuse became overt. I was raped several times under the umbrella of submission and my body belonging to my husband. I don't mean that I said, I'd rather not, and he persisted. I mean that I said, no, and you're hurting me and get off me, as he forced himself into me anally over and over until he was done. He literally gaslighted while raping. It's okay, you're okay, he'd say. He hit me a couple of times, kicked me in the ribs a time or two. The thing is, physical abuse is really shitty, make no mistake, but it was the mental abuse and incongruence of that season that messed me up so severely. My Sunday morning image and my real life were not two sides of the same coin, more like different countries, cultures with different currencies. I prayed to die. For five and a half years I prayed to die, but on the surface we were the golden couple. He was a youth minister and I was a worship leader. We gained respect and reverence among our community. Push a pin into that story. Back to my dad. He was in a hotel room ready to kill himself when he called me. My mom had left him and he was ready to die, literally ready to kill himself. I basically shamed him into getting a Bible open and getting real with God. He did and my mom came back and they started over. It was one of those overnight transformations you hear about from Cussing, tyrannical, perverted cowboy to broken-hearted Christian making amends everywhere he could through tears and prayerful apologies. Since the night when I was 15, I'd kept my distance, my mouth shut, my heart closed, and my prayer hands clasped. God forgive him. I don't think he knows what he did. Save him. I prayed it over and over. So after he was saved, I started the hard work of forgiving. I talked to him about what happened that night when I was 15. He couldn't remember a single detail of it, so I recounted it to him, every excruciating part of it, and we both cried. He got up to tell my mom, who was asleep upstairs at the time, but I stopped him. Why break her heart over water under the bridge? I was foolish and afraid on some level to be the reason for their demise after they'd worked so hard to stay together. Also, I believed my dad that he couldn't remember and trusted that it wasn't a pattern of behavior in his life. I came to know later that he himself was forced to perform sexual acts on a neighbor as a child. He had never told a soul before me. Eventually, my dad started sharing his testimony, excluding the details of our fucked up encounter because I asked him not to. He was a passionate speaker and loved the Bible, 
Soon he was asked to fill in as our interim pastor in a small church in our hometown and later became a senior pastor. He's angsty and prophetic and fiery to this day. Okay, take that pin out now from abusive husband number two. Ironically, my dad saw evidence of abuse in our marriage and called him out, kicked him out of ministry and encouraged me to leave him. I did and found out I was pregnant six weeks into our separation. I have an incredible daughter from that horrifying union. He has nothing to do with her and for that I'm grateful. God was protecting us, I felt. Enter husband number three, quintessential evangelical virgin, thought leader and worship pastor in his community as I was, tender, wise, mysterious, Enneagram five all day long, sexy and not your typical church musician. By that I mean he was classically trained in violin and jazz guitar and totally badass. We fell for each other during a failed attempt to record an instrumental album of prophetic meandering. Mostly we just tried to keep our hands off each other. He loved my baby and loved me. He struggled with but accepted my sordid sexual history. I've left plenty out here because it's just too much to write. He'd saved himself for his pure and undefiled dream wife. But here I was, a twice-divorced single mom. I was still a hot mess. I'd been through some inner healing programs and resources available in the church, but for the most part, hadn't shared my real story with anyone. Anyway, we were so golden for a few years, my husband and me, in ministry together, writing songs, making more babies, etc. But church work got heavy, and a tangible, relational experience of God was just sort of nowhere in all of it. I was absolutely nowhere in all of it. I championed bad theology and wrote lyrics from sermons and wept and prayed and thrived in a way, but inside I was a shriveling woman of secrets and pain, addicted to purpose and scared to death of personal reckoning. My husband and I left ministry intuitively knowing the structure we were in wasn't healthy. We needed relationship far more than purpose, both of us. The final blow came five years ago when my husband's sister was murdered at age 23. He just disappeared into the pain, emotionally sinking into a vast and consuming depression while I worked full-time as a CFO and tried to help make all the ends meet. Raising three little girls while trying to maintain connection in a numb marriage sort of broke me. Finally, of all things, it was the pain of being married to a good man, not a terrible one, and still drowning in a sea of disconnect that brought me to my knees. I began an exhausting journey of self-discovery because I had no one but myself, it seemed. A journey of finding love and empathy for my own story above all others. I was doing the fucking work. I had put my Bible away and taken up the pen to write my own revelations. I came clean in all the ways one can on paper, in therapy, and with a very select few of my people. At some point, a moving and connected, albeit aesthetically hilarious, practice of yoga ensued. I heard myself, my body, for the first time a couple years ago, and from that experience, everything shifted. Here's my current hypothesis. I'm a god. We're all god. She's everywhere. He's everything. 
We personify it for relatability, maybe. Maybe God has expressed energy in and through every single thing, like light, refracted, reflected, absorbed, revealing. Not good or bad, but totally other. Energy, science, physics, resonance, pressed through the imaginations of fractal-type replicas of that same energy, cosmos made in its own likeness or something. And maybe the Bible is a record of people personifying just like I always have, ascribing form to and interpreting the voice inside themselves as something outside for the sake of connection. Maybe they were all processing via art, poetry, and metaphor the issues of humanity and the culture of their day, just as we all are. Such a freeing new perspective, a possibility where questions matter more than answers. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, I moved out of an external structure of conditional performance into an internal one of unconditional acceptance. And it felt like the fucking gospel for the first time. Fingers crossed found me one day recently when some shit in the world was upside down and I just wanted to hear music and chill. I sat on my patio and cried for six hours, obsessively observing every word, every ache, every sonic and emotional nuance. I know divorce. I know shame. I know instant loss of connection. I know leaving behind a long-held idea of who and what God is. Your record broke me open like a dropped alabaster vessel. I was worth poured out and wasted, and it was exquisite. So here we are today. I'm sad, grieving, and celebrating. Goodbye to the face of my failures, hello mysteries, and science and mystical wandering. The grass is way greener over here where rock bottom is supposed to be. P.S. I have no idea where to file Jesus in the ideas I'm pondering. Currently doubting virgin birth pretty hard though. Hello. Hi. Hey, you can hear me? Yes, and I'm just glad you can hear me because that means my computer's working. Well, it means that this like crazy like recording studio rig I have in my dorm was working yes. too. So that's good. Cool. Well, um, great. I've got my wine. Got everything I need. Books are returned. <laughs> ready to go. Maybe I should do a yeah, little refill yourself, real quick. Pour yourself a little glass so we can get into it. All right. Done. <laughs> oh, even that sounded great. Wow. <laughs> so clear. Oh, it's beautiful. Yes. Um, so we know each other. IRL in real life, Um, we go to school together and the way that you and I met and we were sharing it with, you know, our pal tonight at dinner, the way you and I met was we kind of originally connected over our previous experiences within kind of the evangelical kind of world. So, um, yeah, I would love to hear about what your experience was, um, what that was like for you um, specifically, and yeah, just dive right in with that. Sure. Um, yeah, first of all, though, uh, thanks for having me on. And um, yeah, you know, I listened to the episode a few, a uh, couple weeks ago, and I appreciate the, uh, you know, the commitment to, you know, a broader 
perspective. Mm, yeah, thank you. That was important. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I'll just dive right in, I guess. I, uh, you know, I grew up going to church. It was, um, it was, it was evangelical without calling it evangelical. It was more based in the um, prosperity gospel mm. kind of. Like super charismatic. Super charismatic and definitely tailored to, um, well, young entrepreneurs, capitalists mm. like my parents. Mm. You pray, you follow the rules, you get rich. This is what you get. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We went every Sunday, but it wasn't, you know, it, real, no, nothing about my home life was, you know, really dogmatic at that time. There wasn't, you know, we'd pray before meals. And, you know, the stuff, these conversations would come up every once in a while, but I remember it being not that, you know, not not such a big part of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, all that actually happened at school. I started at the, at, at, uh, the elementary school at our church, uh, Abundant Living Faith Center in El Paso, Texas. Abundant Living Faith Center. Mm-hmm. It used to be called Agape, and then they changed it to oh, Abundant God, Living Faith Center. Oh, God, because everyone's called Agape. So, yeah, that seems like a wise yeah. move. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what they did. And um, went there for a few years. Um, you know, same thing, Bible study every Monday. Or, you know, um, I think they... It was called chapel. There was like a youth minister that would come in and mm. say a bunch of over-the-top stuff to us. And then um, they, my parents moved me out of that school to actually the school uh, at the church where they got married mm. uh, on the other side of town, uh, Jesus Chapel. I went to a school <laughs> called Jesus Chapel. Right to the point again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, while I was there... And maybe it's just because I was a little older, I have better memories of the different ways it was messed up. Uh, so, you know, we had same thing, chapel on Mondays, youth pastor, you know, you know, that whole, you're either hot for God or cold for God. Yeah, you can't, you can't be lukewarm, right? Yeah, it'll spit you out his mouth. Right. He went on this insane tirade about like how, you know, he, he, he started by basically saying, do you know the nacho cheese at 7-Eleven and how delicious what? it is when it's really hot and how gross it is when it's really, or, you know, how, and how you can't really use it if it's very cold. And if it's oh. like lukewarm, you just like want to puke it out. Oh my God. And like, and like eventually he was just kind of like screaming at us, like, don't be the lukewarm nacho cheese. Oh. Um, that is, or, or you are the lukewarm, you know, so something about God wanting Whoa. to puke us out. Something like that. Um, but that's one really clear memory of chapel that I had. Oh my um, God. And one of the first times I was like, oh, this is crazy. Real weird stuff. And then um, and then things at Jesus Chapel, you know, the longer I was there. So they're one of the, both schools actually do uh, corporal, corporal punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and yeah, I, I had avoided it all the way up until the sixth grade, right? Everyone was so mm-hmm. afraid of it. But like, you know, the way it was told, the way, you know, I always perceived it it was you know it was for the bad kids you know or the kids who got in fights or who cheated on tests or you know stuff like that and the first time I got a they called it SWATS the first time I got it oh and the language and the language uh, around it it's changed a little bit but it's still in the student handbook I checked (gasps) oh yeah well the whole thing you know um, the so they're hitting children. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they're very. It's so specific. I guess it has yeah. to be because it's like, I, I don't know what kind of, um, you know, what the legality is around it. I know that there are like, I think there's like 14 or 19 states that still allow it. Shit. Uh, yeah, and Texas is of course one of those. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, they have to take precautions. You know, they they tell you, you know, that it's gonna it's only three. No more than three swats. It's with a wood paddle. It's with a faculty member of the same sex. Um, they're very specific about that. Mm. And uh, and uh, what else? Oh yeah, just kind of the whole procedural thing. You know, we will explain the offense to your child. We will call you and let you know, uh, meaning the parent. We will sit and pray with the child. We'll administer the punishment and then and then afterward comfort them and assure them of God's love. Yeah. <laughs> Basically saying, this happened because God loves you. Oh and, my God! And it, yeah. it's it's so dramatic. I, you know, I, yeah. I feel like a it lot was of it was in the Christian school that I grew up in too, um, yeah. and in the Christian home I grew up in too. So. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, no, my sister got a little worse than I did at home, mm. but I was like, I have a theory about that. I have oh, a theory yeah? that girls are perceived to be disobedient more often than boys are. Um, if they're just asserting their personality. Um, That's probably fair. I yeah. mean, my sister would turn around to them and say things like, that didn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, um, you learn pretty early on that that's how you get it worse. So you oh, just yeah. kind of learn to cry upon command, like, right away. <laughs> oh, you know, it's funny. Like, my, growing up, my little sister was so stubborn. Like, she would fight those tears. I mean, mm. to the point where, like, well, my, my parents, like, started be, to be like, well, we can't hit her anymore. Like, it's too... You know, oh it's too God. much. Um, and, you know, they you could tell that that was never a punishment that they were totally comfortable with, but they did yeah. because, you know, the, the spare the rod yeah. uh, line it was around. It was sanctioned. Mm-hmm. It was appropriate, apparently, within that paradigm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but the, the, you know, the fact that it was happening at school, I mean, it, I got it more at school than I ever did at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I was swatted, I think, uh, probably about four times, um, always for the same reason. I uh, The first time it was because I... Um, uh, I had forgotten to do like a significant chunk of my homework at home. Mm. And so I came in the next morning, realized what had happened, panicked, um, and ran to the bathroom with my pace, like my little workbook in my, um, in my back pocket, kind of, mm. kind of hidden. And I ran in there, filled things out real quick. I was like, it's okay. It doesn't need to be a good grade as long as it's, you know, as long as it gets turned in. So I yeah. went and I like, kind of, you know, did the best I could with the limited amount of time I had. And I took a little too long. Um, and when I got back, you know, I went to my desk, you know, pulled out the pace and went and put it in the pile. And, you know, they, they noticed. Mm. And they waited for us to come back from our break. And um, I go in and my teacher, uh, her name was Mrs. Spoon. Um <laughs> I just, I remember that. I don't remember her first name, but I remember Mrs. Spoon. Mm. And um, she, you know, pulls me aside. She's like, Eric, like, I know what you did. You're a lousy liar, um, but that's a blessing. Oh. And yeah. And um, and I just want you to know that, like, you know, you've been recommended for a SWAT. And like, just those, I mean, like, it was like, oh my god, my world's ending and there's nothing I can do to get out of it. Yeah. I remember, like, the burning feeling in my head, like, there's no getting out of this. Like, I felt, it was it was one of the most terrifying moments of my life at that point. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, they did the whole thing. They tasked the principal to do it. Um, this like really big guy, um, Dr. Han is what they called him, or Mr. Han, maybe Mr. Han. I don't think he was a doctor, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So you know, and he's always like this jolly guy. So it was really weird to see him kind of slip into the role of uh, mm. SWAT giver. Wow. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this whole thing, like, you know, I was very weepy by the end of it and, and, you know, I mean, it hurt, you know? Yeah. And also it was just the whole thing is just meant to like scare the shit out of you. Like all the anticipation I had to wait, you know, through like two periods to like get there. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. So after I already knew it was coming and, uh, yeah. So after it was over, you know, just like it's supposed to happen. They, he prayed with me, gave me a big hug and, you know, explained, you know, explained how much God loved me and how much he loved me. And, um, you know, um, and it always happened for some reason like that. Right. I'm not the kind of person that, you know, I was not the kind of kid that went and got in fights, um, or, or like cheated off other students. Not that that would have been, not that, not that that's an excuse, you know, that that's a, a justifiable reason to do that to a kid. But, you know, I just kept getting punished the same way for the same thing, you know. And eventually, like, and it happened a few times, they started uh, having this, um, the, the, the science teacher slash, like, football coach, softball coach guy, Mr. Moreta, um, start doing it. And he, um, that was especially weird because he was like actively bullying me. Like, mm. yeah. So that the, the, the power dynamic changed immediately. It wasn't, it wasn't like kind of the, you know, I love you. Don't really want to do this. Like principle, it became this teacher there that like would intentionally like humiliate me in front of the class whenever he got a chance, you know, mm. um, just for, I mean, anything, literally anything, you know, but like, but this is the man who was like, administering the corporal punishment to me um, at a certain point. But but yeah, so um, middle of seventh grade, my parents moved me out of Jesus Chapel, actually middle of eighth Mm -hmm. grade, um, because we met a bunch of alums who had gone to college and were completely unprepared for Mm. what they encountered when they got there as far as sciences. Yeah. Especially as this, as far as the sciences go, um, and even math in a lot of cases. Um, so my parents did move me out, and yeah, I mean, you know, we still went to church every Sunday, but you know, I my like faith in the home wasn't, you know, it, it didn't feel so present for a while after that. And then we moved to California um, after my freshman year of high school, and yeah, so fast forward several years to my senior year of high school. Uh, I realize I'm queer, um, and I've forged this like really new, incredible, exciting, naive mm. uh, sexual relationship, emotional relation- relationship with um, my very best friend Jason. Mm. And yeah, so you know, we kind of did what we did, you know, for about uh, about three years, I want to say. 
And how, how did that, how did that affect kind of the way that you were relating to yourself inside of your own mind in regards to maybe some of the things that you were taught by your school or your church or your parents about, um, about queer people? Um, what, what kinds of things were going on in your head at that point? Was that like a difficult thing for you to come to terms with about yourself or was it an easy thing to, for you to come to terms with about yourself or what was that process like? Yeah, so I mean, I, I was sorting through it in my head because I, I th- this conversation that I'd had with my father uh, way back when we lived in Texas. I remember, I remember him. I remember. I don't remember how it came up. We were talking about gay people and homosexuality, and and his sister wasn't uh, isn't out lesbian, um, and was then too. Was living with her partner Kokis, um, who I love, and um, you know I. I don't think I knew she was gay at the time, mm-hmm. but but I remember it coming up for some reason, and I I kind of expressed, you know, I don't I don't think that I don't think that gay people are going to go to hell, Dad. Like I don't I don't I don't think it's a sin, and and my dad's very dramatic, but mm-hmm. um, you know, he said something like, you know, well then I failed as a father. I remember That's really being really struck intense. by that. Whoa. You know, like, well, I had no idea he felt so strongly about it because he never, we had never talked about it. Mm. It was never something that came up in the house. Um, I, I, you know, I think I'd heard my mom mention that she didn't really feel very liked by um, a lot of gay men. And, you know, which is also a, a kind of bigoted stereotype, right? Mm. That gay men, all gay men hate women. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I've actually, I haven't really ever thought about it that way before, but that's kind of a, a re- it's a ridiculous jump to make to right. arrive at that conclusion. That's, oh, it's real wow. though. It's real though. She, you know, she wow. just, she just kind of, you know, even though she was a conservative Republican was still, you know, you know, would still point to the gay community and say misogyny, you know? Mm. Wow. Um, you know, which is true in plenty of cases, but you know, probably not that one. This probably one. <laughs> not that particular case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. but anyway, um, so yeah, as far as how I dealt with it, um, I dealt with it in a really weird way, actually. I um, so Jason's mother was actually really, really religious too. She was a little more on the um, on the Pentecostal side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we spoke in tongues at my church and stuff, but, but, you know, she was next level, like prayer groups of like all her friends and like, you know, prayer shrouds on my mother. And like, they were, you know, praying her multiple sclerosis away. Um, so, but yeah, I set that up actually. Me and Jason did, we, we wanted to spend more time together. We thought that would be easier if her parents were closer. And, and yeah, so, I mean, they did, they hung out and, you know, I got, I got more time with Jason. Mm. And then once we got our driver's licenses, we didn't really need that to be a thing anymore, but it still sure. was, but, you know, but, you know, so we hung around each other all the time. Um, and then I was ready to, you know, I was ready to come out and I wanted mm. to be with him and he yeah. was not ready to do that. Um, and it like completely devastated me and broke my heart. But I, you know, I just said, then I can't. Like you, you don't understand what this does to me. I'm just like, oh God, I was so young. But I remember saying to him, like, I'm just like, every time I'm not around you, I'm like, just this in this like, this this malaise. I think is the way I, just, I described it. 
um, you know, just like not not being able to be with you, you know, it's, it's making me miserable and, and I can't, you know, I can't keep going um, unless you, you know, unless you're ready to do this with me and you're just like, no, sorry, like, I know. And then he explained it away all sorts of ways. I, you know, I love you, but no, but, or I love you, but, you know, this is just fun or I love you, you know, but, you know, this, this is not going to happen. Um, you know, I mean, he never, ever planned on coming out. I, I know, I know he has now, but he, you know, he was never going to, you know, I remember I talked him into going to college because he was never going to do that. And, you know, I tried to talk him into coming out, but he, he didn't do that. Not till, not for years, late years later. Yeah, so I cut ties with him, um, kind of for my own emotional well-being, and um, yeah, uh, so he he kept in touch with my little sister, which I was just like, listen, like you've got to stop talking to my family, you know, um, and because he was close with my family, you know, my mom was, you know, kind of losing mobility because of her MS and. You know, if I wasn't around, he was around taking care of her or, you know, I mean, we were, you know, we were, we were like that together, you know, I mean, like he was, he was always around. Um, my mom actually thought my sister was going to marry him one day. Wow. <laughs> so, um, you know, and he'd go and help her sell all of her, like, you know, uh, these like religious bracelets she was making at the time. <laughs> She'd go to, he'd go to like these like um, Christian um, expos with her and, you know, help her set up tables and stuff. And then all of a sudden he's gone, right? He disappears. Mm -hmm. and my mom's like, what's going on? You know, where's Jason? Why can't I, why can't I talk to him anymore? He's like a son to me. I'm like, no, like, I, I don't want to talk about it. It's my, it's my personal stuff with him. Please don't ask me, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to tell you, know, I don't want to tell you this is not how, in my mind, I was like, this is not how I'm coming out to my parents. Right. Um, yeah. Especially not yet. Cause I was still dealing with like, you know, the very real pain of having like lost Jason. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, so she kept, she kept pushing and pushing. Like, why can't I talk to him? I deserve to know this is my business too. He's like my other son, like what's going on. And then, you know, I finally like, you know, my dad comes and gets me one morning, uh, before he went off to work and he goes, will you please just tell your mom what is going on? Cause she will not stop talking about this and she won't let it go. And I told her it's your business, but she won't let it go. Like, will you just tell her something? Yeah. And, you know, um, I, I was like, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, we just, I, and I think I said at that point, well, we just had a fight. Like, I don't want, I don't want to, we're not friends anymore. And my mom still was like, I want to know. I want to know. My dad was just like, and then my dad just starts guessing things. He's like, did he come on, did he come on to your sister? Did he say something mean about your mom? Did he do this? Did he do that? And finally he goes, are you lovers? Um, and I was just like, oh God, they, I, I, I don't know what other opportunity is going to look like, you know, I don't know if there's ever going to be a safer time no. to say it. So I just said, you know what, it was more than that. Mm. And, you know, everyone got very quiet, you know, 
my dad, you know, it was time to go to work. So he, you know, he said, you're really confused, but, um, but, uh, I love you and, you know, I'll see you when I get home. Well, you know, well, I'll just, I'll see you when, when, when I get home and he gives me, a, you know, he gave me a big hug and he left. Um, and my mom was just kind of just, she, she, you know, she kind of just turned on the TV and started, I was just like, what, what do you think? Whoa. You know, what are you thinking? And, you know, she would say stuff, you know, just, I'm just worried about your soul. You know, I'm really worried <laughs> about your soul. She'd gotten it from somewhere, you know, right. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it was, it was definitely, I'm, you know, I'll, I find out later that Charles Neiman, the pastor was, um, um, had some pretty strong ideas about it. But first, mm-hmm. you know, um, what ended up happening was, um, you know, I went and hung out with my best friend and just told her what had happened. And, you know, I stayed out extra late because I really wanted to avoid any conversation that night. And when I got home, sure enough, it was, um, they were, you know, they were up waiting for me and it, it, it kind of became so explosive, particularly with my father that we had to, I mean, I, I ended up, I ended up calling my friend, my friend back and just being like, can you please come back and get me? Like, you know, um, there are a lot of like irrational things that happen, you know, at that point, you know, like, you know, I'm probably not the only one that's had this experience, but like, you know, people start trying to figure out what thing to blame. Right. It's, it's, you know, and then I think what we settled on pretty quickly was it's our fault for giving you too much freedom. Mm. You know, we got to start reining it in. I was 17. Wow. And, um, yeah, so. So they thought letting, allowing you to be independent made you gay? Oh, yeah. Or, like, exposed <laughs> me to people, it exposed me to people who, you know, encourage that kind of behavior, you know, mm. um, kind of corrupting. That's such a Christian thing, isn't it? Like, the, yeah. I, that's, yeah, that's, that's a bizarre understanding of, of sexual orientation, is that it's it's like some it's like the flu and you can just catch it from someone else. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you know, and and you know, lots of really hurtful things were said that night, and um, I did end up, you know, leaving to my friend's house. Um, and when her parents greeted me, it was I mean, it was really exactly what I needed. And they, you know, they're conservative, but they, you know, they came up to me and they give me a hug, big big hugs, and they were like. They'll, they'll, they'll realize, they'll realize how important you are to them, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So how, so with this process, um, I mean, this experience of, you know, kind of, you know, you were kind of robbed of it being on your own time and on your own terms. Um, so that's an extra element of it, but in this process of coming out to your family and kind of owning your identity in that moment and them receiving you that way, which is so, you know, intense and resistant, like what happened to your belief and maybe this is jumping ahead a bit too but did anything happen to your personal like faith belief system and that structure during that time as well I mean I not at not really at first you know I in preparing to come out you know I had done a lot of research I'd found soul force and Mm. just like oh look there are like there are you know I had no desire to become one but I was like there are you know gay uh, preachers and and pastors Mm -hmm. And they're a part of this organization that, you know, is, you know, I guess was like the main resource I was using at the time. Um, yeah. So my beliefs, I think I tried really hard to keep them as consistent as I could. Right. I, I thought for a very fleeting moment that, you know, I could, I could be, I could maybe be a log cabin Republican, mm. you know, <laughs> um, 
Yeah. I mean, I really, I was, and I really, I did that because I, I, you know, I think I was holding on to some kind of perceived vestigial idea of masculinity that Mm -hmm. I thought would go away if I suddenly became a liberal. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I tried to I tried to hold on to everything. I really did, um, uh, and I, I did it I, in big part for my parents too. You know, I wanted them to see that I was still the same person. But um, but I, yeah, it's something they they only believe that to I think to a to an extent. I I know I know um, I know when my mom's mom mind started to change, and hmm. it was um, I remember hearing her. Uh, on the phone in the house. She was on the phone with Charles Neiman, actually, the pastor from Abundant Living. And he told her um, that, you know, same thing, love the sinner, hate the sin. You love your son. It's okay. I, you know, and he would say, I love my brother, you know, because he's gay. Mm. I just don't leave him alone with my kids. <gasps> <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, it kind of suggest, you know, the suggestion was don't, don't leave him alone with kids and, you know, kids like me, you know, and, uh, oh my God. but I find out later, you know, that, that, you know, that was when my mom was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like my son is not a pedophile. Oh, so that was a moment where she was like, I have a problem with what with You're what he to just me. told me. Yeah. This wow. isn't, this isn't, yeah, this isn't support. This is like, you know, or like, you know, maybe you mean it to be, but like, I know this, I know my son and I know that he's not wow. that. So what happened from that point, did your relationship with your parents kind of start to repair or at least with your mother in that? With my mom, with my mom first, with my mm-hmm. mom first. Um, I was heading into some really, really like rocky territory with my dad. Um, yeah. but, um, you know, and then my mom started to get sicker and, you know, uh, and, you know, stress really aggravates um, MS. So, mm-hmm. you know, I I think on some level I felt responsible for it. Um, and I know, at least on some level, I think my dad probably blamed me a little bit for it. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so she would go out of town to get um, plasma theresis done uh, for about three weeks at a time. And I was... And my sister would go too to help her. So I was alone in this house with my father, who was, mm-hmm. you know, at this point, um, really, really struggling with this, you know. Um, and it became too intense of a situation for me, you know. I, I shortly after that, we moved to a new house, all, all of us. And maybe a month or two after we got there is when I decided I needed to be living someplace else because things were too volatile. Right. Uh, Nothing I was doing was working. Mm. Um, I'd even started going to see the Christian therapist that they had um, arranged for me to see. Mm. Um, and I liked having a therapist, but you know, um, but he his his only real attempts to to convert me were in the beginning, you know, and and it was high stakes, you know. He 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 was basically what he would basically say is, uh, you don't get to be the person who you were before if you go down mm. this path. Wow. Yeah. So, um, these are just all such (laughs) intense responses. (laughs) I mean, I think that's the point, right? I mean, they were really, especially the trained people, the people who were trained in this, you know, or who, who act as guides through this, you know, really, 
I mean, that must be the strategy, right? To, to really introduce yeah. some kind of ticking clock scenario, you know, like you've only done this mm. so far, but you know, if, if this goes on any longer, yeah, you know, you're gonna you're gonna lose who you were. Right. Yeah, my, and my parents were very thoroughly manipulated by these people. Yes, you know, just, absolutely. LGBTQ teenagers are treated within evangelicalism. Um, what kind of thoughts do you have? Because you know, you being non-religious now, um, I'm, I'm curious about kind of just you having gone through it and felt the way that you felt, and or felt the way that you felt, and the um, kind of the response of not only your family but then like religious leaders and Christian counselors. Um, what do you when you kind of look back at your experience and look at look at how that plays out now? Like, what do you see? I see, if I could go back and talk to myself, you know, I would say, just get out now, you know, mm. um, you know, things will get better when they miss you, you know, um, mm. because there's really no way out um, if you try and do it their way. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's what ended up happening. You know, I left and I came back, you know, because my mom was still sick and they needed help and they had promised to kind of stop intruding on my life and 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 trying to control it and uh and yeah i mean now i have very supportive parents both of them who wow. know and love my partner mm-hmm. you know it it i mean they've really the, i mean it's a it's a testament to like how the how you know how much you know i think they love me but I, you know and i that's not to say that other lgbt lgbtq ia people who um are going through this don't actually have parents that love them you know it's just it's just you know i think it's just the the it's just you know what people are willing to believe and 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 how far they're willing to go for it you know there are plenty of parents out there who will end their relationship with their kids but you know that's you know that's not always the case and you know i worked really hard for a long time and 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 it and it really did a lot to to me emotionally but you know i'm i'm still dealing with that but i'm really grateful that I have, you know, that my parents are coming to my graduation next mm-hmm. semester, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, thank you so much for, you know, honestly, I think it, it, it feels a little weird to kind of like wrap, you know, wrap it up because <laughs> there's so much more, like there's so much more to say um, about it. But, you know, you just being able to very honestly speak about what your experience was, um, what you went through, the way it felt, um, even just some of the specific messages that you, because I've, I've heard that from a number of people before with that kind of the pedophile accusation. It's just like, it's, it's baffling to me um, every time I hear it, but to know that for some reason that posture is supported within that religious system is disgusting to me. And I, I just, it's, 
I don't know. It's and and it's not necessarily supported by the entirety of that religious system. I'm not saying it's like a Christian position, but by and large, I find it to be a very evangelical position. Um, but yeah, so. Uh, Thank you for telling your specific story of what it was like for you um, and sharing it so openly and so honestly and so vulnerably. Um, and I really appreciate it. No, of course. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, of course. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Jamie. Bye. Bye. If this episode or any other has meant something to you, we want to encourage you to share the podcast with someone you know show them an episode you think connects to their story. There's peace in processing these things together, as difficult as many of them can be. So help us get out there and and share as you see fit. We'd love to continue meeting new people through the podcast. Of course, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and we have a private Slack page for our patrons. Check us out on Patreon if you want to support the work we're doing. We have some really cool things planned, and we so appreciate everyone who contributes. It means the world. Also, check out theairingofgrief.com for further content and opportunities to connect. So that's it for now, and we will see you all again next week after church for The Airing of Grief. 